The message from God's Word comes from 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel 14. If you remember, 1 Samuel 13 and 14 are a unit. They go together. Even though there is a chapter division, it's just a long narrative. But what has happened is that God has installed Saul as king. Saul is now trying to protect Israel. But what we read in chapter 13 a few weeks ago is that Saul is fighting the Philistines. He's waiting for Samuel to come. Samuel isn't coming exactly when he expects him to. He goes ahead and sacrifices to the Lord himself. Not waiting for Samuel as he was instructed. He's rejected. Samuel leaves. And yet, here in chapter 14, the Philistines are still in the land. I'm going to read the entire chapter. It's a long chapter. Please remain seated. 1 Samuel 14, hear God's holy inspired word. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave or field at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, wearing an ephod. The people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of one was Bozes and the name of the other, Sena. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hid themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became very a very great panic. 
And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them into battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. And Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a stone. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord, and it was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night, and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand, into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be 
In Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If the guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken advantage of taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes. We pray that the knife would cut straight and deep. We pray in Jesus' name that our hearts would be changed and we would see your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of the sermon is Cycles of Confidence. I believe what we see in chapter 13 and chapter 14 is really just life. It's life happening. These kinds of things happen to us, maybe not that dramatically, maybe not with Urim and Thummim, maybe not the the holy um, way that they would cast lots to find answers to, to problems and that kind of thing. However, all the themes that we see in these two chapters really are just life. We're going to see how despair turns to confidence. Then we'll see how confidence turns to action, how action turns to victory, and then victory is replied to with foolishness. In chapter 13 and in chapter 14, there's some some kind of overarching things that I think are important to see. First of all, Jonathan is the one taking action. Both times. In chapter 13, Jonathan takes action. Chapter 14, Jonathan takes action. He looks like a king. He's doing what a king should do. He's fighting. He's taking risk. He's trusting God. In both chapters, we see that Saul is rejected. Saul is foolish. Saul is doing poorly. And Saul is leading the people into despair. This is where we start in chapter 14. 
in the very beginning, actually in the last few verses of chapter 13, there was not a sword or a spear found in the hand of any of the people of Israel. Everyone had dispersed and there's only 600 left. And as you read, there were Israelites even fighting for the Philistines. Everyone else who isn't there with Jonathan Jonathan or Saul, they're all hiding in holes where they're fighting for the Philistines. The Philistines are raiding all throughout Israel. In chapter 13, Saul was just rejected as king for disobeying God and the prophet Samuel. None of the Israelites have weapons. There's only 600 men left. Saul brought a priest with him, but it's a priest from the line of Eli. That's why the writer of Samuel, Samuel, mentions the the generations of Ahijah. He was the grandson of Phinehas, the wicked son of Eli, who'd been rejected by God as well. So there's a rejected king with a rejected priest surrounded by the enemy. And we sense the despair. This is our lives as well, isn't it? Sometimes life just rolls over you. And you're tempted to despair. But not everyone was despairing. Jonathan decided to go out on his own. Secretly. Probably because he knew his dad wouldn't want him to go. Regardless, Jonathan and his armor bearer decided to use the passes we see in verse 4. And to get to the main Philistine army. So while there's despair in the camp, Saul seems impotent and frozen. Jonathan seems vibrant and moving out in action and confident in God. So from despair to confidence, well, why is he confident? This is the second point. He's confident because he knows his God and he knows God's promises. Look what he says. Verse 6, Let us go to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Whenever you hear that word in the Old Testament, you need to to remember that the circumcised were the covenant people of God. So Jonathan is remembering that he is one of God's children. And these people are not. They're the enemies of God. So he knows God's promises, but he also knows who God is. He said, perhaps the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord by saving, by many or by few. He knew God. He knew his God, and that gave him great confidence. Gave him courage to launch out. I like also how he says, it may be that the Lord will save us. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. He's not claiming that he knows exactly what will happen. And this is our lives as well. When we pray, when we launch out in faith, in one direction or another, perhaps it will work out the way we hope. Perhaps it will work out a different way. But we know our God. He's aligned himself with us, with the seed of the woman, with his church. Jonathan knew that God had delivered Israel's enemies throughout their history up to that point. He knew his history. I'm sure of it. He probably knew that Abraham and 318 men had defeated five kings. 
318 men. He knew that the Lord could save by many or by few. He knew that God defeated Pharaoh in Egypt without a single soldier swinging a sword. By many or by few. Jonathan trusted God completely and moved out in his zeal for the Lord. And again, he said, perhaps God will save us. Perhaps it may be that God will save us. I think this is, this is applicable for our lives as well. When we pray, we pray boldly. We pray and we move out. We do things that God has called us to do. They may be risky things. It's okay. Things may work out the way we hope. It's okay to be realistic in your prayer. We pray for mighty works of God. We pray for God to do great things through us and through this church, in our families. But God isn't beholden to do anything exactly the way we want it. Perhaps He will answer your prayer in the manner you desire, but perhaps He will not. It doesn't change who He is, and it should not change your confidence that God is God. We must trust Him. Remember who God is, like Jonathan. Remember His promises. We are the circumcised. We are God's people. We're circumcised in our hearts. The covenant promise is ours. We are God's people, and He is our God. This gives us confidence. But this confidence turned to action. And this action turned to victory. This is the third point. We see action turning to victory. His armor bearer was with him. Jonathan said, we're going to show ourselves. And if they call us up there, we're just going to go up and fight. I think if I were the armor bearer, I don't know if I would have responded like he did. Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I'm with you, heart and soul. The armor bearer is also a man of great courage and great faith. This should also encourage each one of us. You may not feel like you're the Jonathan in your life. You may not feel like you're the one striding forward with your sword or your spear in faith. Maybe you're helping the armor or the one who fights. Maybe you're the armor bearer for someone else. Maybe you do your work on your knees praying for God to give success and victory to the church. And really, this armor bearer, I think, is the unsung hero. If you've read the book, The Lord of the Rings, or seen the movie, you know Frodo is the, the hobbit who's carrying the ring of power. He's the important one, and his task is to destroy this ring. His servant, Sam, is a lowly companion. Yet Sam's the hero of the story. Not Frodo. Sam's the one that carries Frodo when Frodo is weak and helpless. Sam is the one that saves Frodo from danger. Sam's the one that sees the danger that's around them. Sam actually has the ring in his own possession and gives it up, something that no one else had done. This armor bearer strikes me as that kind of person, and maybe you're that kind of person as well. 
Maybe you're an unsung hero of the faith of this church. You work in prayer. You work quietly behind the scenes for the glory of God. Jonathan gets all the credit. The armor bearer is not mentioned again, is he? But without the armor bearer, I think the story might have been much different. He faithfully followed his master into single combat. And it was a foolhardy plan from a human perspective. It looked silly. We're two people. We're going to go fight the whole army. And that's exactly what happened. The Philistines saw them stand up. They said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of these holes. They say, come up to us and we will show you a thing. It's interesting, isn't it? Even back then, this, this smack talk just went on back and forth between armies, competitors, whatnot. Come on up here. We'll show you what's up. They pridefully called them up. And rather than being terrified, Jonathan told his armor bearer, Let's go. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. So Jonathan and the armor bearer climb up the cliff face on their hands and their feet. Two people to fight an army. And Jonathan proclaims, The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. What faith. And God gave them a great victory. Jonathan's first concern, you should note, was the honor of the Lord. These were uncircumcised people defying the armies of the living God. And God had given Israel a great victory. So when you're tempted to anxiety or to distrust God and your service to God, remember that our battle belongs to God. We fight the same way Jonathan did, but we fight with love and with prayer, with fearless love and compassion to those who despise us and reject the faith. When we fear that we will be destroyed, we move out in love and we trust God. Like Jonathan, perhaps God will also give us a great victory. So we see that God moved from action to victory. Seemingly because of the faith of Jonathan and his armor bearer. But fourthly, we see from victory to foolishness. Saul had laid an oath on the people, verse 24, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until I have avenged myself against my enemies. Verse 29, Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. The whole army was under this oath. They could have eaten all day if it weren't for that oath, but they were famished. Nobody ate. Why did he make this oath? We don't really know. Worst case, it was just out of power and pride, his own personal pride. Best case, it was like some corporate piety, some fasting that was supposed to get God's favor. Regardless, it was unwise, and the people were hard-pressed. Notice in the previous chapter, the people were hard-pressed because of the Philistines. Now the people are hard-pressed because of Saul. And then when they had destroyed their enemies, or when it had become night, the people pounced on the spoil, and they slaughtered the animals and ate them with the blood. 
They ate them with the blood. This was a huge sin. It was a sin, and they all knew it, but they were so hungry that they ignored God's word and ate the blood. It seems like the situation becomes more tragic with every minute in this particular narrative. It's just foolish. The army was famished. They were under a curse not to eat. They got so hungry that they just slaughtered the meat and ate it with blood in it. And then we see Saul trying to figure out why he felt like God was not with him. And he made another oath that whoever the lot fell to would die. You might ask why the blood wasn't to be eaten. I think it's important just to spend a minute talking about blood. Genesis 9 says that everything that lives and moves is food. This is the covenant with Noah from God. Just as I gave you green plants, now I give you everything to eat. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood in it. Why? Leviticus 17 tells us. Verse 14, for the life of every creature is in its blood. Its blood is its life. So the blood wasn't meant to be eaten. It was meant as a sacrifice. It was meant as a reflection of the sacrifice required for sin. So this is very serious that they're eating the blood and it's precipitated by the foolishness of this king. So we go from victory to foolishness. And then we see Jonathan being condemned by his father to death. It's just crazy. It's crazy how these things are working out. The man who brings about Israel's salvation is the one who should be killed. And Saul's convinced that this is the right way to go. He wouldn't be saved by his father. Instead, he would be killed by his father. Why was he so eager to have his son killed? We don't know exactly why, of course. Was it the pride of his oath? Was it jealousy of his son's accomplishments? I hope not. Regardless, it was a plot of Satan to destroy a man of God, and he was saved by the people. And note in verse 44, that in effect, when Saul decided not to kill Jonathan, the oath that he proclaimed just came on to himself. He said, God, do so to me, and more also, you shall certainly die. What a horrible, horrible thing to say. So he did the right thing. He didn't kill his son, but he did it for the wrong reason. It was just pragmatic. The people said, don't kill him, so he didn't. Much better if he had just decided not to murder an innocent person because it's wrong. As a point of application, it makes me, I was thinking about Jonathan, Dr. Ralph Davis talks about Jonathan as constantly being portrayed as the righteous king. Jonathan, not Saul, it's the prince who's acting like the king. And this cycle is played out three times, where Saul is seen as a failure, Jonathan is seen as victorious, Saul is foolish, Israel is distressed or dismayed by his actions and put in danger. But that day the Lord saved Israel. So if Saul was foolish again and again, and Jonathan was righteous, why? Why wasn't Jonathan allowed to rule? 
He's a noble and kingly figure. It makes sense to me. Why didn't God let him rule? He's trying hard. He's a capable leader. What's God doing? Seems like he's earned the right to rule. But God doesn't work on our paradigm. He doesn't work in our economy, the economy of history, the way that we think he should. And this is difficult for our American ears to contemplate. We're all told you can be whatever you want. You just got to work hard. You can do anything you want. You can be fulfilled. You can be the president. You can be content in anything. Just work as hard as you want. You'll be successful. And certainly there's measures measure of truth to this in a free society with a free economy hard work and perseverance and diligence are certainly going to pay off but God is the one who provides the freedom that enables these gifts it's not always the case in communist countries hard work does nothing to improve your quality of life there's no fulfillment at all but it seems that Solomon or Jonathan, actually, seems that Jonathan should be allowed to fulfill his dream, to be the king. And I think it's because we idolize self-fulfillment. Carl Truman spoke recently at a conference we were at. He talked about his father. And really, he's, he's discussing this, this just cult of self that's just so prevalent in our culture today. Everything's about the self and self-fulfillment. Carl Truman said his father, or actually I think it was his grandfather, was a coal miner in England. He said if he had asked his grandfather, are you fulfilled in your work, granddaddy? He said his grandpa probably would not have even understood the question. What do you mean exactly? Fulfilled in my work. I have a job. They pay me. I provide a house, clothes for my kids, food on the table. I guess I'm fulfilled if that's what you're asking. But back in that day, just working hard and providing for your family, that's what you did. And if you were able to do it, you praised God. There wasn't this this desire to find personal fulfillment in every single task. And in the same way, I think we can look at Jonathan and say, Jonathan had no right to be the king, to be perfectly fulfilled in all of his desires. That's something God had decided. And Jonathan actually knew it. We'll see that in the following chapters. David had the same attitude. He could have killed Saul so many times and fulfilled his desire to be king, but he wouldn't lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. He was going to try to work for God alone. Our primary purpose, brothers and sisters, on this planet is not to find personal fulfillment. Whether you work at home or whether you work outside the home, if God's given you work to do, praise God. Our primary purpose in life is to glorify God. And you know what? If God is your focus, you'll find fulfillment in whatever you're doing. That's just the way it is. If God is not your focus, you probably will never find fulfillment doing anything. I had a friend who who was always looking forward into the future, just in his planning and his thinking. And he would ask me, Richard, I just, I really want to know what God's got planned. You know, he's he's led me to this point and in 10 years, who knows? I just want to know what, I'm just so interested in what God is doing. 
He must be doing something really amazing. I just wish I knew what it was. These are all the wrong questions, right? What what are you doing right now? Are you pursuing God right now? Are you working for God right now? As Jonathan did? If your work is what fulfills you, you have created an idol, and it's foolish. There's only one thing that truly fulfills any of us, and it's God. It's Jesus Christ. But this is life. Life often leads us from despair through the cycle of victory and then back to foolishness and despair. It's, it's a, a cycle that we've all been through a few times. But for the believer, despair should lead back to confidence. Why? Because we know our God, like Jonathan. We know who He is. We know what His promises are. And God will even use bad leaders and bad situations to accomplish His purposes. And that's what we see at the very end. This is the conclusion from despair back to confidence because of who God is. In your life, if you're feeling a temptation to despair, if you feel like things are going so badly you don't know what's going to happen, or you just don't feel a fulfillment in your life in anything, or you just feel so sick, your body aches, Or you see relationships and families being destroyed around you and you don't know what is happening. Stop pursuing the Philistines and start pursuing God. Saul was used. We read at the end of this chapter. Saul was used. He fought valiantly. He defeated the Amalekites. He fought against the enemies on every side and God granted him victory. After defeat and despair, trial and tribulation, sorrow and sadness, God's people can be confident that He will be faithful. He will be faithful to you. You are His child. He loves His children. might have a bad leader like Saul around you. God will be faithful. Saul wasn't pleasing to God. He had failed to keep the covenant with God. But God didn't fail his people at all. He continued to provide victory for Israel. And he used Saul to do it, even though he had been rejected. Your own foolishness may have very well brought you to a similar disaster. But even that, God will use for his own glory. Has anyone else seen that in their lives? I've seen it many times. My own foolishness leads me to a path where I think, oh no, it's all over now. God uses it for His own glory. So we can be confident. We can be confident in our Father, and our God, and the King of kings, and Lord of lords, that all things will be used for His glory. Remember who your God is. Remember His promises to love you. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You that You granted such a great and mighty victory to, to Jonathan, And his armor bearer, you gave him great courage and great trust and confidence. Lord, we want that trust. We want that confidence. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Turn our hearts to you. May we trust you with our whole hearts. May we know that you will never leave or forsake us. May we remember that you're a compassionate and faithful God. 
and you're faithful to your people. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name.